Welcome to Cabin Minute Cast. The scenario has been chosen. The ritual has begun. We are ready to appease the old gods one minute at a time. I'm Heidi Bennett of HeidiBennett.com. And I'm Molly Balin of LittleRedMark.com. In today's episode, we're covering minute two of The Cabin in the Woods. And in this minute, we start with a sign for a fresh cup of coffee and with the characters mid-chat about Stockholm going down. And in between, we get to know the nesting habits of Hadley's wife. So the first thing I wanted to chat about is this coffee machine. Cool. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> My first thought was... And, and I know that you had a brief foray into the world of coffee management. Um, oh, yes. So I feel that you especially have commentary to make. But there's something soul-sucking about having a paid-for coffee machine situation. Yeah, I did find it. I love this set design. And we'll talk about it in detail as we, you know, unravel it throughout the minutes. But it is sort of timeless in that if there had been a, say, a fancy espresso machine or a fancy coffee maker or just a standard industrial coffee maker, it would still kind of put this in a specific era. And I think it's hilarious. We've got two, it looks like two different microwaves on the counter. And then underneath, we've got various ways of disposing of your waste, recycle, and etc. And then this huge behemoth of a <laughs> coffee maker that's so old school and in a beautiful way. I love the, the image we talked about briefly at the end of the last minute, the enjoy a cup of fresh coffee. So that's like a sort of a poster embedded in the front and it's got a coffee grinder, coffee beans spilling out of it, a coffee cup, a little vase with fresh roses popping out of it. And I think also maybe a plate of, you know, donuts or pastries of some sort. And then all these industrial looking buttons that we don't get to look at too much, but I imagine they'd add, you know, cream or sugar or, you know, decaf and stuff like that. But oh my God. It, yeah. It's I, the, the only thing I miss out of this minute is that we don't hear that signature sound of, of how these machines used to work where the cup would come down. Mm. It would kind of plop into place. And then you'd hear that kind of, you know, almost as if the coffee cup or the coffee machine was like peeing into that cup, <laughs> serving you a nice hot cup of usually not too great, um, pretty watered down coffee. And then, um, so that is sort of a nod to the modern is that Sitterson puts his own, it appears at least, we can't quite tell, but it seems like maybe he puts his own cup down there. Maybe it plops out. I don't know. We don't, but we don't get that, that part of the story. What did you think about, what did you, what was it about this thing that you felt compelled to want to talk about? And this may be liberal arts education talking here, but I felt that this was such a beautiful symbol for what this movie is talking about in the negative about humanity. You have what 
almost seems like an office space comedy in the beginning Mm -hmm. because it's a couple of guys who are literally chatting. They're literally next to a water cooler. So it's a water cooler talk. (laughs) Yes. But that you have this employment situation. And I know there's a lot of, and it depends on if you're in a more higher end situation and you had brought up, you know, that there isn't even like a standard coffee maker here. So it's not even like, there's a coffee maker or an espresso machine or like an espresso cart on campus that you can go to. It's literally a paid for coffee situation. (laughs) I mean, out of a machine. So, and granted it's got that old school graphic feel to it of the image of like, look, have a fresh cup of coffee that comes from God knows where that isn't ground, obviously. It's coming <laughs> out of an automated machine that you have to dig for quarters to get in because whoever carries cash anymore. So the, right. the whole thing about it is just so sad and depressing. And to also know that the level of investment and care of, and we'll you know talk about this complex in a minute, but it's this huge complex full of people working there who are getting shit coffee. <laughs> Yes, this is what they're fueled by. Yeah, good point, good point. Yeah, I do love this room. It's so stark and industrial, and and there is something sort of, I do find a certain, this aesthetic of like, just everything's very organized and all against one wall, (laughs) and you know exactly where everything is. Like, it looks like they have framed um, probably the all the stuff that you have to post from like OSHA and everybody that makes sure you're compliant with all the rules of running a business and making sure, you know, everything's cleaned properly and maintained at the right temperature and all that stuff, all the regulations and things. But it looks, it looks like no matter where you are in that room, you're going to know exactly where everything is because it's always exactly in the same place. And I do, I do have an appreciation for that. One of my very first jobs, even though it drove me to, to absolute tears at a certain point mm. was so organized that I I loved it because of the organizing. Uh, you know, everything had a, a, a perfect place and a reason. Unfortunately, the people that owned that business had kind of forgotten that humans would be involved in the, the running of the business. <laughs> so they had everything so organized down to, um, you know, if you showed up 10 minutes late to your shift or God forbid were sick and couldn't come in, they, it was very hard for them to find somebody to work your shift. Or if you were 10 minutes late, it meant they had to stop what they were doing at the job and turn around and do your job because there was no wiggle room for efficiency. So this does have a, gives me kind of it's efficiency porn here that I do appreciate to a certain degree. And also the the fellas, and we'll talk about them a little bit more, but we're introduced to Hadley and Sitterson here, and they have that sort of, you know, Mormon costume on, you know, the white shirts, the ties, the slacks. You're so right. So when I see them with this, especially one of them has long sleeves and one of them has the short sleeves of this, it's, it's, um, it's also timeless. Again, we've got really a timeless, um, uniform that they're wearing. Right. And that is like the classic uniform of 
you know, a cultural acceptance, but also drudgery because they have to wear a tie. And from my, I mean, I don't wear ties, but from my understanding for a dude to have to have to put on a tie to go to work every day, there's a certain button upness. But they're not, this is not like a nice suit. Like he's not thrown on like a Tom Ford, you know, this is like, as you're saying, man, a short sleeve, white collar button up with a dark tie. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say it's funny that we're talking about these outfits that you have to wear because that same place that I worked at, I'll confess. So it was one of my first jobs. Not my first, but one of my early jobs. And it was at a muffin bakery. So, you know, <laughs> we're doing God's work. <laughs> and <laughs> we had something that we had to wear, which were these pastel colored. I almost just threw up a little bit thinking about <laughs> it. Pastel colored polo shirts. And I was like a punk, you know, I was a weirdo with crazy hair and all this stuff. And, and I didn't want to have to come in every day wearing this pastel polo shirt. And nobody else that I worked with really wanted to either. But the one of the owners was sort of, she was very old school. And, you know, when I would complain about wearing that, she'd say, Oh, well, I used to have to wear, you know, pantyhose, (laughs) a suit, you know, and all this stuff. And, and I remember saying, Yeah, but that's just not how the world is anymore. You know, you don't have to do that. So this is definitely a, uh, a certain type of outfit for a certain type of job. And and it sets the tone for them being at kind of, a, there are a couple of regular Joes at a, getting a cup of regular Joe mm-hmm. and they're at a regular job, at least as far as we know so far. Yeah. There's a soullessness that's already been established. Yeah. So let's get into this conversation that these guys are having. Like you said, they're literally at a water cooler. <laughs> Hadley's leaning on the water cooler and he is talking about his wife. What it sounds like is they're attempting some type of fertility treatment and his wife is preparing obviously way in advance by restricting the drawers being open. So, you know, when little people start walking, they don't stick their hand in the knife drawer and, you know, get crazy with it. Obviously, this is profoundly premature. Right. She's even, he mentions, even done done this on the, the upper cabinet, you know, so by the time the kid is 30, if they even have a kid... You know, that that's <laughs> the upper cabinets are even safe. And I thought the conversation was interesting just because, again, it's sort of what you'd expect. But knowing where this movie goes, the fact that he's talking about fertility and will go on to later conversation where he, he says her doing this prematurely is going to jinx it. And that this is a nightmare, you know, all these things that are words that we kind of throw around casually, I think. But in the context of where this movie goes, I kind of wonder, like, oh, are are these are these your beliefs or is it just casual way of carrying on a conversation about a about your wife and kind of sort of bitching about your wife a little bit like you're just throwing around words like oh, she's going to jinx us, and this is a nightmare, and all that stuff. 
<laughs> it's pretty light and floaty compared to some of the things that are going to happen on later in the movie that have to do with these subjects, things that really are a nightmare. And yeah, what does he believe about jinxing and all this stuff? You know, what are their beliefs? We don't get too much of that from the whole movie. You know, we get little teases about this world and the gods that run this world and stuff, but it made it just gave me a bit of a pause to wonder. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point in that you have this comment about being jinxed and you have this sense of foreboding and coupled with that, there's an expectation that life's going to go on, that we're just living. So within, and that you're right, that does become a theme that becomes more prevalent and talked about as the movie goes on. But you're right. What's interesting here. And what was interesting to me is this conventional discussion about we're expecting to bring a child into the world, but we're also using language that's kind of supernatural in nature, right? Within this very cold, sterile, office people running around with lab coats, so you have a sense of science that's also married with the supernatural. And it's being thrown around fairly casually. Awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had some thoughts that you had found some research, you had thoughts and research on the complex. Right. So I mentioned in episode one that I got the Cabin in the Woods, the official visual companion. So there's just a couple things throughout it having to do with design. And one of the thing was that there's a little highlight on the complex. So Martin Whist, who did the production design, said for the underground complex, the control room and the elevator bank were built were builds on stage. But the big reveal, the very wide shot in the big area, which we haven't gotten to yet, is the aerospace building that belongs to the British Columbia Institute of Technology. It's very high tech industrial and it's a brand new building, but it's and it's never been shot before. So we had looked at a dozen places up to that point and luckily it came up on the radar and we went there and it was just fantastic. So yeah, I just thought that was cool that they were able to use. So they built all this stuff on sets, but then the building itself, as you pull back, uh, you're able to see something that had never been shot before. So that's something to look forward to. And another thing that they mentioned too, was that they call all of this stuff. So again, we're just in one room right now, but we're going to see a lot more of this complex and that they also referred to it and on the production as the white space. So the white space, all of this, the control room, all these other rooms that we get a little peek at specifically is made white so that the blood just really pops off. <laughs> and boy, does that really come into play later in this movie. So I'm wondering if they mention any of the wayfinding signs in the hallway. Oh, I didn't see any mention of that. I did read through this book from from front to back once. And then it also has the script in it. So I read the script, but I don't recall them specifically talking about those. I was kind of curious if that was something that actually was augmented specifically for production or that was just a part of the environment. There's a, and you do see it, there is a sign for administration. You know, that's pretty 
stark, simple, sterile, gray on white, white text on this charcoal, long, giant, crazy sign. Anywho, I was just curious if something had come up from that. I noticed that it was a another piece that I thought was really well done to give a sense of the enormity of the space, that it was large enough that you actually had to have wayfinding signs, not unlike going to a hospital. Right. Yeah, this really, once they leave their break room and start walking, you do get, you get a touch of what this, you get an idea of what this space is like. And it does have that kind of retro futuristic, you know, kind of like something maybe, you know, aerospace kind of building or it seems like here's another trope for us, which is this what appears to be a secret space underground. So at first, we don't really know that because, hey, they're just a couple of guys in a break room. But as they start to make their way down this sort of, it's not quite a hallway, what would you call this a walkway? You start to get the sense that they're going to be going downward. The walkway itself I'm not sure if it literally goes downwards, but but the way it's shot, I get this feeling that they're moving down. And I love the way both of these guys, their body language is so awesome. It's different. It's distinctive between the two of them. I love the body language. Both of them look like a couple of schmoes on the way to their regular day job. I think Sitterson's coffee cup work is very believable. And so, yeah, like Richard Jenkins, his, I, I, it's one of those things that people have talked about when you're watching a movie or TV show and people are holding a cup of coffee and it doesn't look like there's anything in it. And I always notice that. And I feel like he did a really good job. Like it looks like he's holding a cup of coffee here. Yeah, and Bradley Whitford, just the way his hands are kind of jammed into his pockets and he's still talking about his wife and they're just kind of making their way down the hallway. I think they just do a fantastic job. And yeah, as the set is revealed behind us, again, there's this timeless retro future, who knows when, where, is, you know, I don't see any windows. There's a lot of ambient lighting. It's a really beautiful set. And very stark and very sterile and very corporate mm-hmm. and very, but yet kind of airy and expansive too. Mm-hmm. You know, is this something that's built to last uh, forever? Like it's made out of really sturdy material and isn't easily, isn't temporary. Right. It has a bomb shelter feel to it. Yes, there we go. Bomb shelter feel. <laughs> right. If people built an office in a bomb shelter, that's what that would look like. You had mentioned yeah. that uh, Citizen Hadley had very distinctive body language. And this is something that I, I've always enjoyed about Bradley Whitford. But Bradley Whitford just walks like he's got 10 pound balls to me. Like he just. <laughs> There's something just effortlessly confident that he has and you know eventually you know we'll bring this up with uh, rick and julia from mad max minute julia has a uh, appreciation for bradley whitford as well but I, I still see a lot of josh lyman from west wing in this character um, there's still that very boyish overconfident slightly snarky 
And he's a ginger, and I love gingers. So I, have, <laughs> I got some love for Bradley Whitford. <laughs> yeah, he's so lovable. And I mean, he, speaking of West Wing, he's doing a classic walk and talk right here, too. <laughs> You're right. He absolutely is. This is totally the walk and talk. <laughs> So we have a third character that's introduced here, Lynn, who's played by Amy Acker, who brings up that Stockholm has gone south. And there isn't a reaction of real concern coming from these guys as they're doing the walk and talk, the West Wing walk and talk. But what's interesting, I think, about this particular minute is that there is quite a bit of horror foreboding in it. If you really listen to the subtext in the conversation, that you do have the sense that something is going horribly wrong. And even though these guys aren't necessarily reacting to it to the same degree that Lynn is, people were coming in to this movie, if you saw it in a theater, probably expecting a horror movie, but were met with office space instead. But <laughs> even having said that, there is the foreboding of... Hadley being concerned that his wife doing this stuff to the cabinets is a jinx, as in there may never get there in terms of building a family. And then you have the secondary foreboding that whatever is happening in their world is going south, literally. And so there is this horror element that's being snuck in here, although you don't have the traditional or sounds. You don't have somebody who's just waiting around the corner. But what's beautiful about this is that it is snuck in there as subtext. Yeah, I wish I could remember a little bit better how this felt at first viewing. I do remember hearing about this movie by listening to Doug Loves Movies, which is another favorite podcast and one of the earliest ones I started listening to. And I remember Doug Benson saying, you know, hey, don't watch any trailers, don't watch any ads on TV, just let this movie surprise you. And so I did the best I could to try to not look at anything, watch anything. And even, you know, the logo or the the design of the some of the posters and things that were released that have this cabin that's kind of three pieces sort of broken apart in this funky puzzle shape, almost like a Rubik's Cube kind of cabin, already gives a little hint that this is going to be something a bit off kilter. But I do remember going in not knowing that there would be some surprises and that might not be your typical scary movie. And that's why I wanted to come see it. But I, I do wish I could kind of, you know, relive what this felt like to just go, well, what's going on with these guys? You know, who, what do they have to do with the a cabin in the woods? <laughs> but right. yeah, there's just these little hints, these little, these little hints in conversations that don't really mean too much yet that you kind of go, hmm. For me, I like to go, oh, I can't wait till I watch this movie all over again. Now that, you know, once I know everything that goes on in it. Yeah. And I think that the ability to see that starkly really does come after multiple views. Yes. Yeah. And just, just, um, I, those are really good points. And I just wanted to say Amy Acker, I definitely want to talk about her more on another episode, but I'm a huge Amy Acker fan. And I actually, I know that she was in other things before this, but for me, when I first fell in love with her acting and her beauty and just her 
just awesomeness was in Dollhouse. So I was one of those people that did watch Dollhouse, <laughs> even though, and I watched it on Netflix. So for people who aren't aware, it was actually being made around the same time as this. It's a Joss Whedon show that popular things that happened with Joss Whedon, it got canceled way early. And um, the first episodes I found a little bit, a little bit obnoxious and silly in some ways, but I also found it intriguing. And so when it came out on Netflix, I just started watching it and really liked it a lot. And I loved her in that. She's actually on this other show, which I can talk about a little bit more at another time. But on uh, we call it my husband and I call it interesting people stories. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Persons of Interest, <laughs> and that was another show that I didn't really get into when it was on the air. But once it hit Netflix, it started out as kind of seemingly sort of a typical kind of action adventure. TV show that had some compelling sort of main characters. But as it went on, like it started as sort of like, oh, sort of a, a cop procedural, but it went a lot deeper and crazier as the seasons went on. And so people that that like that show will know what that's about. But she she plays a really great character in that too, that becomes a stronger, it's one of those shows that, and this, this happens a lot in modern um television, and I'm loving it, is there these shows that start out where you go, oh, okay, so typically the two main people are dudes. All right, yeah, well, there's another show where the two main people are dudes. And uh, although the main guys in this show do play major roles all the way to the end of that series, it also gains several really strong female leads. And so it's really an ensemble that includes a, a whole bunch of really awesome female actresses and characters that are very strong and, and kick ass and, and smart and cool. So yeah, so that's another one of my shows that I really got into and that she's a big part of. Nice. And this is going on now. She's on the show. Well, that show is, has finished, but it went for quite a few seasons. And I think it had kind of an underground cult following because I, like I said, when it first debuted on regular television, I watched a couple episodes. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. But as it, as it went on, you know, when you have those certain times in your life where you just want to get into a series and just kind of see it out to the bitter end, <laughs> because I think maybe I probably started watching it when it was maybe the winter and I was feeling a little blue, or maybe I was sick, or maybe I was in one of my depressions that luckily hasn't haven't been happening as much. But for a while there, I was having some fairly serious bouts of depression. And so I may have started watching it during one of those, but it became one of those shows where because it was on Netflix, you could binge it. And I started watching it after a while. My husband started watching it. And then I forget how many seasons it went, but quite a few. And it got really interesting. So yeah, e- interesting people stories. <laughs> persons of interest. No, that's fantastic. I think we're we're also fans of that police procedural. Um, my husband, in particular, devoured all of CSI Miami. Gotcha. All of it. 
So yeah, Persons of Interest, it's probably still on Netflix. If you, if you're into that kind of thing, you might want to check it out, but you'll just know that, um, the first season might seem a bit conventional and then it gets better as the seasons progress. Rad. I'll have to check that out. So yeah, we've got a cast of some seriously strong actors here. One very sexy ginger to carry us into this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is the finest, like, sexy middle-aged ginger that you can get on TV or film. <laughs> so is there anything else about Minute 2 that you'd like to talk about, Molly, before we wrap this thing up? No, I'm feeling complete on it. Okay, let's do that outro that's becoming easier and easier to do with every episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to thank you for listening to episode two today. We are Molly Balin and Heidi Bennett. And this is Cabin Minutecast. I want to make a special thank you to Aloha Screwdriver, the band behind our closing music. And the name of the track is Doom Buggy Hellride, and it is the marimba version. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Uh, We love it. And Aloha Screwdriver, they're a local band here in the East Bay. You can find them at alohascrewdriver.com. And um, you can join us for episode three. So episode three is going to come out on Friday, and uh, we'll get a little deeper into the complex. So we want to thank you all again for tuning into Minute Two, and we'll see you back at the cabin. Thank you.